This is Asked and Answered. Questions. With Tom Opferman and Steelers Digest editor Bob Labriola. Labs, before we get into the football questions and the Steelers questions, I forgot to ask you last week. Did you make it down to opening day? Did you make your pilgrimage down to Bucko Ballpark, see the old Buckos in action? Um, I can honestly tell you, when, when you started that question, I started thinking, I've never been to an opening day in my life. <laughs> wow. I mean, um, I was hoping it was going to go down this path. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not anything, you know, it's not any kind of statement or anything. I mean, usually um, work had, you know, taken precedence. I mean, when I was younger um, and, and not working, um, you know, that, that sounds like a college day, kind of college age kind of thing, you know, due to blow off school. Oh, I and, used to do that all the time uh, in high school. Skip school, go to the game. Yeah. Um, but, uh, no, didn't uh, didn't get around to it. I mean, I, I skipped uh, school and college a bunch of times for <laughs> stupider reasons <laughs> than reasons. going to the opener. <laughs> but um, never did that. And um, so, no, I was not there. You know, it's funny. The most recent baseball stadium I've actually been to was like 4,000 miles away. I went to Seattle's ballpark a year ago. It's been like four years since I've been to PNC Park. That place is just dead to me right now. All right, let's get into these Steelers questions from Steelers Nation, though. And our first one comes from Chris Ferris from Carmichael, California. Given the depth in the draft of defensive players, with the real possibility of getting value in the second round and the team's need for a big play wide receiver, would you swap the number 20 pick in the first round of the upcoming draft and possibly future picks for DK Metcalf. I wouldn't necessarily give up the house, but if he could be gotten for the number 20 this year and a first-round pick next year, I would be interested. Am I off base? Uh, I'm not making that deal, uh, and I'm not the the reason I'm not making the deal, and uh, and I'm emphatic about not making the deal, has less to do with my opinion of DK Metcalf as a player and the reality of his situation. And let me explain myself. Um, okay. DK Metcalf is under contract for the 2022 season. And obviously, you know, as Chris explains in his question, he understands that because he's talking about trading for him. Right. Okay. So his salary cap hit for 2022 is 4 million, which is fine. Okay. But then he can become an unrestricted free agent in 2023. Now, I did a little bit of research into this. Um, a website that handles these kinds of things, you know, um, salaries and cap hits and all that kind of stuff is called SpotTrack.com. Right. And they peg his DK Metcalf's market value at $24.2 million per season. And then that website is projecting he would sign a four-year deal worth something a little over $97 million once he reaches the open market. So the trade proposal is to give up two first-round picks for a player who most likely would be playing for another team before it's even time to watch another team spend the second of those two number one picks you want to trade away. You know, because DK Metcalf, if you're not going to pay him $98 million, he's not going to sign. An old franchise tag thing, you know, I mean, it, it's it's just not worth it for me. The hassle is not worth it. So, no, I'm not making that deal. 
Uh, no offense to Chris Ferris, but boy, am I glad you're not the GM of this football team. <laughs> Roger Howard from Seven Valleys, Pennsylvania asks, eliminate regular season overtime. I like it. Fortune favors the bold. It seemed that earlier in Coach Tomlin's tenure, the Steelers went for two-point conversions fairly often. Where do they rank among the boldest teams in the NFL these days? Um, I, I really can't answer that in terms of where they rank. Uh, in terms of boldest teams, because, first of all, because I don't know that any kind of ranking exists. And the other thing is now that analytics has you know become a popular thing, I mean, Brandon Staley goes for fourth downs ridiculously, uh, you know, in punting situations in his own territory early in games. I mean, he's going for it so because that's what the percentages say. So, you know, now that you have these kinds of analytics-driven coaches in the league, um, you know, I'm sure that there are others who are um, bolder or what I would say stupider. Um, But there are a couple of instances where I remember specifically Mike Tomlin making decisions that either um, prevented a game from going into overtime, in other words, he went for the win, or in overtime – making decisions that were, you know, not according to uh, popular wisdom. And let me give you those examples. 2015, week five, Steelers in San Diego, Sunday night game versus the Chargers. Ben Roethlisberger was inactive for the game because of injury. Um, Landry Jones wasn't looking very good at all that year, and that was the year that the number three quarterback was Michael Vick. That's right. Just to, okay, okay. So in that game, Rivers, Philip Rivers, um, is is lighting it up. Um, Thirty-five of forty-eight, three sixty-five, two touchdowns, one interceptions, a rating of ninety-nine point seven. The Chargers are controlling the ball, you know, and the Steelers are struggling to try and figure out ways to stay in the game and then maybe try and pull out a win on the road. Okay, so the Chargers take a three-point lead. With 2.56 remaining, 20 to 17, a 40 yard field goal. Okay. The Steelers take uh, the, the kickoff was a touchback. So the Steelers are at the 20 yard line, close to the two minute warning, and they're playing with Michael Vick. Okay. So um, he puts together a nice drive, converts a third and one, 15 yard completion to Hayward Bay, third and six. Vic escapes, does the Michael Vick thing, runs 24 yards to the San Diego 17-yard line. Then three plays later, third and 10, he completes a 16-yard pass to Heath Miller. The ball is at the Chargers' one-yard line, five seconds left in the game. The Chargers call a timeout. Okay, so chip shot field goal, you're in overtime. But instead, Tomlin sends, uh, leaves the offense on the field. They line up in the Wildcat. Snap the ball directly to Le'Veon Bell. He gets the ball into the end zone. As time expires, the Steelers win 24-20. No overtime. Okay. Then in the other instance of this was one of those uh, outside-the-box decisions in overtime. It's week five of the 2019 season, October 6th against the Ravens at Heinz Field. Again, no Ben, and Ben's done for the year. This was 2019. Duck Hodges. Um, So uh, that game started with Mason Rudolph at quarterback, 
Devlin Hodges was the backup. Uh, the Steelers were in pretty decent shape until Earl Thomas cheap-shotted Rudolph, concussed him, knocks him out of the game. So now the Steelers are down to Hodges. Um, but they're still very much in the game because their defense is playing great. Lamar Jackson uh, was 19 of 29 for 161 yards. One touchdown, though. He threw three interceptions, was sacked five times. Right. Okay, so the game goes into overtime. Steelers win the toss. So it's windy and there's rain. Not hard rain, but it's wet uh, rain. Well, obviously, rain is always wet, but it's a wet kind of everything is wet. Okay, so the Steelers elect to defend the goal and uh, take the wind. Okay, so everybody, what is he out of his mind? Right, okay, so very this unconventional was, there. <laughs> okay, this is the way Tomlin explains it. Doc Hodges is the quarterback now. you got to understand Correct. This. So, okay, so the rules were at that point um, – the game was over if the team that won the coin toss took the ball and went right down the field and scored a touchdown. This is the Ravens defense, and you got Duck Hodges. What are those chances? Right. Uh, the other um, part of the, the overtime rule then was if the, the team that received the overtime kickoff did not score a touchdown on their first possession, then the first team to score – or the other team could win it with a field goal. Okay, so based on what the Steelers' defense had did to Lamar, done to Lamar Jackson to that point, Tomlin decides to put the defense on the field, take the win, so that if um, they can hold them, then Chris Boswell would have the wind at his back, and you only need a field goal to beat the Ravens. Okay, so Steelers kick off, the Ravens come out three and out, punt the ball. So the Steelers now have the ball at the 32 yard, their own 32, and things are going according to plan. All they need is a field goal now to win the game. Second down, Duck completes a 10 yard pass to Juju. First down, Juju fumbles and loses the ball. The Ravens recover, and they're at the Steelers' 34 yard line. Um, they didn't, they weren't able to move the ball, but they're in Tucker's range. He kicks the field goal, and the Steelers win. Now, if Juju doesn't fumble, who knows? Right. Maybe the Steelers get a little more, couple more first downs, and Boswell makes the field goal. But clearly, um, Tomlin's decision was an offense quarterback by Duck Hodges is not driving the ball down the field against the Ravens' defense to win a game in overtime, and they got a field goal kicker you know, who can make it from 55 or 60 yards to end the game, I'm going to try and play it the other way. Good decision, didn't work out. You know, each game individually has its own kind of game temperature, I like to say, and the great coaches can get a good feel of it and make these unconventional decisions when they need to be made. The people like Brandon Staley, who, like you said at the beginning of your answer, who go for it on fourth down regardless of field position just because, oh, the book tells me I should go for it here, you're not taking that temperature of the game. You're not really, you know, you're not giving your, you're not making the unconventional decision in the right moment there. And Tomlin seems to do that all the time. Yeah, and I, again, I mean, he took a lot of heat for um, both oh, of those. Yeah. Which Especially me, the kicking off in overtime. I remember Twitter melted down after that. Yeah, 
Um, but when you think about it and then look at who the quarterback was He's right. and how the Steelers' defense was playing, I mean, that's your best chance. Absolutely. And it worked out um, <laughs> on his end. It would have. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. Edward Watson from Graham, North Carolina. Do the salaries for the head coach and assistant coaches count against the salary cap in the NFL? And was Franco Harris offered a contract extension in 1984 when he left for Seattle? A little two-parter there from Ed. Yeah. Uh, okay, uh, Ed, the only salaries that count on an NFL team's salary cap are players. You know, players on the active roster, players on injury reserve, players on the practice squad, that kind of thing. Uh, and just to be clear about the Franco Harris thing, um, it was 1984, as you point out, um, when his Steelers career ended. But there was no free agency then, so there was no mm. leaving for another team. Uh, what happened was Franco Harris was under contract. He was in the option year of his, of his contract, and the Steelers were negotiating with him and his agent in the run-up to training camp for an extension because the belief at the time was Franco Harris was going to break Jim Brown's uh, rushing record, uh, become the number one all-time rusher in the NFL in NFL history. And the Steelers wanted him, obviously, to retire um, with them. But uh, uh, Harris's agent, his name was Bart Beyer, decided that you know holding out was the way to go, so he didn't go to camp. Well, in those days, I mean, that was... That, that was crossing the Rubicon. I mean, that, that, that stopped all negotiations. Mm. The Steelers stopped talking about a new contract until the player who was any player who was under contract would report either to camp or to the team or whatever. Um, Franco never reported. Uh, the Steelers got to a point of no return. Uh, they cut him. And then that's when he signed with Seattle. Well, now he's got a statue in the airport, so it all worked out in the end anyway. Before we get to this next question, Labs, I want to warn you, it's a quarterback's question. So you want to take a breather? You want to take a timeout? Maybe step aside real quick? Are you ready for it? No, I'm ready. Let's go. All right. Larry Skinner from Bartlesville, Oklahoma asks, in the unlikely event that we end up selecting Liberty quarterback Malik Willis in the first round, where would he be on our depth chart going into training camp? Um, Well, couple of things, Larry. First, let's um, remind everyone that uh, Mike Tomlin hates a lot of things, but I don't know if he hates anything as much as he hates depth <laughs> charts. So, you know, I'm acknowledging that um, they're meaningless, pretty much. And the way he does them um, kind of reflects what he thinks of them, because this is what happens. Um, he pretty much um, puts the new people on the bottom at every position. So Malik Willis as a rookie uh, would be at the bottom of the depth chart. The only person who would be below him would be a rookie who was either acquired in some way after him. By that, I mean a later draft pick or an undrafted rookie or something like that. Uh, The only rookie that I can remember lately who was first team immediately was Najee Harris. Um, Just because they didn't have a choice? I mean. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think it was, you know. And he was so obviously the best. I I always use the, uh, my wife knows that he's the best at that position as the barometer for those (laughs) kinds of decisions. Um, 
It might have been Devin Bush, too, because they traded up to get him. I'm, I'm not exactly certain. But, yeah, so, for example, um, you know, whoever the second-round pick or the third-round pick is, even, even if let's pretend the Steelers draft a strong safety mm-hmm. uh, in this draft, and Kevin Colbert has already said, admitted, that that's the one position that the Steelers do not have um, – you know, a quote-unquote starter already on the roster. So let's say, and I'm really making this ridiculous, so yeah. don't get all excited. Let's say they draft that Kyle Hamilton, um, gen- generally considered the best prospect at safety, excuse me, and one of the top defensive players available in this draft. If the Steelers would pick him, you know, I don't even know that he would be slotted and as the starting strong safety when, you know, everybody shows up for the first thing would be OTAs, I guess, OTAs or mini camp. So, you know, as I said, uh, that's just kind of the coach's uh, preference and not so much an accurate representation of where these guys actually stand. Wade Lauderman from Hartsville, South Carolina. If the Steelers were to sign Tyron Matthew, would they allow him to wear the jersey number 32 that Franco Harris once wore? Uh, quick answer, no. Uh, but let me give you a little um, anecdote to explain the feeling about this. This is back in 1994, the offseason. Free agency was just kind of getting revved up in the NFL at that time. The Steelers signed uh, John L. Williams, an unrestricted free agent fullback, um, Seattle from Seattle. He was a former number one pick. Um, pretty good player. I mean, he was a, um, he was not uh, a level of signing as Kevin Green, but again, he was a, he was a real player. I mean, this guy, uh, good fullback, kept running the ball, good receiver. So anyway, uh, and Bill Cower had taken, had been hired in 92. So he was a relatively new coach at the time. So um, William signs the contract. He's in Pittsburgh getting acclimated or whatever. Um, and he tells the equipment uh, staff he wants number 32. That's what I wore in Seattle. So that, um, that kind of suggestion or request was handled the way my dad used to requ- uh, handle the request of me asking, can I have the keys of the car? Uh, to drive to high school to school today, you know, when I was in high school, no, that's it. There's not a lot of discussion. No, so uh, John L. Williams wasn't, I guess, wasn't used to hearing no, so he goes to Bill Cower and complains about it. So Cower must have said to him or decided that he was going to, you know, take up the request with Dan Rooney. <laughs> so. Um, you know, Franco Harris, even though the Steelers cut him, he was a big part of four Super Bowls, the MVP of the first championship yeah, no the doubt. Steelers ever won. Uh, and, you know, for anyone who was really paying attention to those teams, uh, the, the, the four Super Bowls won in the 70s, the first two were because of the running game and the defense, and Franco Harris was the running game. So apparently I, I was not in the room, obviously, uh, in Dan Rooney's office when this was broached to him. But apparently Dan Rooney gave Bill Cower the same answer that my dad used to give me. 
um, with not a lot of discussion uh, and no room for debate John at L- all. <laughs> right. No, that's it. Uh, John L. Williams wore number 22, um, which he wore during his two seasons in Pittsburgh. So that answers the question. No chance that the honey Patrick's going to be grabbing number yeah. 32 or, or to quote Mike Tomlin, never say never, but never. <laughs> Our final question today comes from Gary Scotton from Mantua, Ohio. During the Bill Cowher era, it seemed like the Steelers were able to find quality outside linebackers later in the draft. Jason Gilden was a third-round pick. Joey Porter was a third-round pick. Greg Lloyd was a sixth-round pick. Clark Higgins was a fifth-round pick. And Chad Brown was a second-round pick. Who was the Steelers' linebacker scout during those drafts? They had a good eye at finding some quality players in the third round and later. It seems to me like the organization has struggled in keeping this pipeline of talent coming in recent years. Okay, I want to start with this, Gary. Um, the Steelers don't assign scouts to handle specific positions. Um, the way the jobs are um, distinguished or divide, the way the, the division of labor is divided up, scouts work areas of the country. Uh, and then that's for through the original or the initial wave of information gathering. And then you know, once they figure out who the good players are across the country, then, for example, Najee Harris, um, after uh, he was determined to be an A player, uh, then, you know, then you get some of the other um, important people involved. Right. Um, Kevin Colbert, Mike Tomlin, um, that kind of thing. So that's the way that the Steelers work their scouting um generally work their scouting process. Okay. Now, the other thing to understand is during the Bill Cowher era, which I had said earlier, started in 1992, and Greg Lloyd was, in fact, a Chuck Knoll pick. So that was 86. But even back then, and you know, even through the early uh, part of the Cowher era, there weren't a lot of people, I mean, there weren't a lot of teams looking for what are now known as edge players. Um, you know, the three, four defenses of the time did not, you know, there was Lawrence Taylor, um, certainly, but you didn't, that, that position wasn't as much of a pure pass rushing position as it is now. And so, you know, when the Steelers were looking at Gildan and Chad Brown and Hagens, there weren't a lot of teams looking for that kind of player for their defense because teams didn't really use that utilize that position in that way the game has changed so much now yes and when lebeau you know introduced the the zone blitz uh in 1992 when he was part of the steelers uh coaching staff then that even ramped it up even more you know teams started seeing how these three four outside linebackers could be used as really kind of really mobile chess pieces you know they could attack the backfield or they could drop into coverage you know, and you confuse the quarterback uh, to give the pass rush just that little extra maybe second to get to him uh, because it wasn't so much that you know, just create a little confusion in his mind. And so the ball wasn't coming out as quick, and that was uh, led to the success of that kind of defense. You know, back in those days, again, when, like Jason Gilden was a, a hand-in-the-dirt defensive end. Um, so... When Jason Gilden was at the Combine, he would work out either with a defensive lineman 
or the linebackers, but not both. Yeah. And what you, a team could put in a request with the uh, powers that be at the combine to have a guy like Gildon work out uh, at the other position. Say they had him listed as a linebacker, they would ask him to work out as a defensive end or vice versa. Now you don't even at the combine they don't even uh, wait for a team to make that request. They just look at they evaluate the player based on how he was used in college, and they make him do both. So what you have is a lot more teams interested in the same player. So it's not so much that the Steelers can't pick these gems out anymore. It's just that today, Gilden wouldn't get to the third round. No chance. Chad Brown wouldn't get to the second round. Um, Lloyd may have gotten you know to the third day because he played at um, Fort Valley State which, you know, that was one of the historically black uh, right. colleges and universities. Maybe, you know, that's a Bill Nunn school, and the Steelers were the only team that had Bill Nunn work in that area. So um, that's, the, that's the explanation. It's not so much that the Steelers have not gotten or they have regressed in their evaluation of these kinds of guys. It's that all the other teams have improved in their evaluation of them and are looking for these kinds of guys. And so uh, they don't last as long. I would actually say that in this modern era where these pass rushers go so high in the first round, what a steal it was to get TJ towards the end of the first round uh, of the draft when they picked him. That's good talent evaluation, and that's good having a good scouting department's eye right there. TJ Watt fell to, like, what was it, pick number 30 before the Steelers ended 30. up snagging him? <laughs> He'd be a top, he should well, have been a top 10 pick, clearly, in hindsight. Yeah, and... Um, you know, as, as often is the case in those kinds of situations, uh, you need help from the other teams in the league. They need to screw up. You know, like, in, <laughs> right, you needed, you needed Dallas to pick Taco Charlton, you <laughs> know, now, in 04. last year. <laughs> right, and now, you know, in 04, you needed Jacksonville to pick Reggie Williams. You needed yep. the Browns to trade up for Kellen Winslow Jr. You need other teams to screw up. Um, and so certainly that's part of it as well, but, you know, as I said, those edge guys, you know, you'll see an edge guy, the best edge guy is probably always a top 10 pick at this point. That seems to be the way they're projecting this coming draft to go. That's for certain. That'll do it for this edition of Asked and Answered. Always appreciate you guys getting in your questions to labs. Make sure you do that before next week's episode. Bob Labriola and myself, Tom Opperman, will be back next Wednesday for a fresh edition of Asked and Answered.